0: The Wired to Be Weird, a podcast about the brain. I'm Ian McLaughlin, a PhD student in neuroscience at the University of Pennsylvania.
1: And I'm Beau, and uh, my PhD is in material science and engineering.
0: Right. Uh, And I'm now going to do the thing that you hear people do at the beginnings of other podcasts, and that's ask you to give us a rating on iTunes or whatever platform you use. We'd appreciate it uh, quite a bit.
1: Thank you.
0: (laughs) Okay. So it's been a while again. Uh, There are a bunch of things that came up since the last podcast, but most of them can probably be summed up by the Shorty Awards, the March for Science, grant deadlines, and preparing applications for the Society for Neuroscience conference in October. By the way, that's happening in Washington, DC. So if anybody's in the area and wants to grab a coffee or beer, let me know. I had also started preparing for a podcast on whether addiction is really a disease or a disorder after Carl Hart, a professor of psychology and psychiatry at Columbia University in New York City, put out an article entitled, Viewing Addiction as a Brain Disease Promotes Social Injustice. Suffice it to say that there is a lot to talk about there, and, and something else has come up since I started doing that reading. And so on March 27th, just last month, Elon Musk, uh, entrepreneur, business guy, some people Crazy call him- Crazy genius. <laughs> some people call him Tony Stark- Uh, So Elon Musk announced that he's backing a new brain-computer interface company called Neuralink.
1: Yeah, I noticed that there were some rumors popping up here and there, some whispers uh, (laughs) before the official announcement. But after that, it's one of the most frequent topics that people bring up in your live streams.
0: Yeah, for sure. And it makes sense. It's a super cool prospect.
1: Okay, so we're going to be talking all about Neuralink, this crazy venture of Elon Musk's. That seems a lot like a sci-fi novel. But why don't we start at the beginning, of course. Uh, What is the concept behind the company?
0: Right. So from a a bird's eye view, it seems like Elon Musk, who's uh, been openly concerned about the effect that artificial intelligence will have on society for a while now, it seems like he's motivated to make something that enables the human brain to compete with what an artificial intelligence or an AI will be able to do. Which is what? Well, uh, whole books have been written about why we ought to be concerned uh, about the prospect of of AI. The book that seems to have become the sort of foundation for much of the modern conversation about AI is called Superintelligence, Paths, Dangers, Strategies by Nick Bostrom, who's a Swedish philosopher at Oxford. Uh, And so he wrote this book in 2014. So if you're interested in what seems to be like the most widely well-regarded work on this topic, you should probably uh, get a copy of the book.
1: Okay, but why is there so much concern over AI? Can you do it in 140 characters a (laughs) lot?
0: Okay, so so to sum up a lot of the debate, the reality is that the human brain, as amazing and adaptable as it is, would quite likely be dominated by a truly general AI or an AI that's equally intelligent uh, to humans. And so while the possibilities for human cognition may seem fairly limitless to us now, given how much has changed in the past 100 years, for example, there are physiological boundaries to what exactly the brain can and can't do. So that
1: was more than 140 characters. (laughs) But it's so interesting that I think we should dig a little deeper. What do you mean by boundaries?
0: Okay, well, so so there's there's this great quote from the magisterial work of American fiction, Battlestar Galactica, (laughs) that I always think about when this topic comes up. So uh, this is uh, what is basically a cyborg called a Cylon that looks indistinguishable from a human, Uh, has a human body and for all intents and purposes is essentially limited to the capabilities of a human. Uh, And and so the quote goes like this. I don't want to be human. I want to see gamma rays. I want to hear x-rays and I want to smell dark matter. Do you see the absurdity of what I am? I can't even express these things properly because I have to, I have to conceptualize complex ideas in this stupid limiting spoken language, but I know I want to reach out with something other than these prehensile paws and feel the solar wind of a supernova flowing over me.
1: Somehow, I think the actors might have read that line better than you did.
0: (laughs) (laughs) How dare you? (laughs) Okay, yeah, you're probably right. Uh, And and so, of course, there are many other works of science fiction that explore the boundaries of human and machine, right? Some of which are are my favorites. And so, like, Isaac Asimov famously explored the topic in I, Robot, which which is, you might be familiar with the movie, but these were basically a collection of several short stories that were published between 1940 and 1950, believe it or not.
1: That's crazy. I mean, we've been concerned about AI for 80 years now.
0: Yeah, I know, and, it, and obviously longer, right? I mean, this is just Asimov. The whole concept of artificial entities uh, that could think appears hundreds of years ago. Gottfried Leibniz, might be mispronouncing that, <laughs> um, uh, explored the idea of a calculating machine, right? And I think one could argue that Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is even a sort of confrontation of the idea that an intelligent being could be fabricated but by, by uh, what might be considered unnatural means.
1: Sure, but both of those examples don't quite hold a candle to something like Skynet or Terminator.
0: <laughs> yeah, true. Okay, fair enough. And Asimov's short stories were pretty interesting explorations of the boundaries. Some are more fantastical than others, and some are written in such a way as to almost come across as stories within another genre, like like detective novels or something. But they all explore the topic of morality in a world where artificial intelligence has been achieved. And since then, there have, of course, been a huge variety of stories that explore the boundary. The Terminator series, like you said, and then my favorite, The Matrix.
1: Oh, and Blade Runner.
0: Yeah, Blade Runner is awesome. Um, you know, of course, it based off of a, a book written decades before, and it's sort of, I'm not entirely sure if, if replicants were supposed to be completely cybernetic, or if there was like a genetic thing going on there. And it'll be interesting to see what they do in this upcoming reboot of, of Blade Runner with... Uh, with uh, Harrison Ford is in it, but who's who's the guy who's in it? Uh,
1: it's that Hey Girl guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what's his name? Oh my God! Oh, Ryan Gosling. Okay. Okay. Before we go too far down this rabbit hole, let's get back to the. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, what does all of this have to do with Elon Musk? Okay.
0: So, at uh, the World Government Summit in 2017 in Dubai, Elon Musk said the following quote: "What to do about mass unemployment." this is gonna be a massive social challenge. There'll be fewer and fewer jobs that a robot cannot do better. These are not things I wish will happen. These are simply things that I think will probably happen. And he's been joined by other tech giants like Bill Gates, as well as the physicist Stephen Hawking, who said uh, the automation of factories Has already decimated jobs in traditional manufacturing and the rise of artificial intelligence is likely to extend this job destruction deep into the middle classes with only the most caring creative or (laughs) supervisory roles remaining
1: so it sounds like the main concern is that artificial intelligence is sort of like the next step along the automation pipeline Uh, both of the things that you highlighted that musk and hawking said focus largely on the short-term effects or even Uh, of even better automation than we see today.
0: Yeah, that's pretty much right. And, And it seems like this is a primary motivation for Musk to have targeted the development of a technology that would extend the capabilities of humans beyond our physiological limitations. And one of the bits of work that seems to be cited by a lot of folks who are concerned about AI seems to be a paper by Frey and Osborne at Oxford, oh, at the Oxford uh, Martin School, and the Department of Engineering Sciences called The Future of Employment, How Susceptible Are Jobs to Computerization, which was published in 2013. And so this is a serious paper that's long and convoluted and well beyond my ability to fully understand, and so I'm relying on the interpretations of others who are likely better suited to decipher the economics. <laughs>
1: Ooh, too hard for you, Mr. Neuroscientist.
0: <laughs> okay, well, there are definitely times when, through my any scientist's eyes, I think, economics can seem a bit unrecognizable. Uh, but, uh, in any case, uh, the pair conducted some uh, economics magic to see if they could quantify the extent of the threat that advances in, in technology pose to jobs in America, and concluded that 45% of American jobs are at high risk of being taken over by computers.
1: 45%, I mean given some margin of error, that's basically half. So half of American jobs are threatened by computers.
0: That's what they found, and they argued that um, it'll happen in two stages. First, computers will replace people in particularly vulnerable fields, and they include transportation, production labor, and administrative support. They also suggest that jobs in service, sales, and construction may also be threatened.
1: Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. Better machines would make building things or transporting things much easier. Uh, given how motivated Uber seems to use self-driving cars or even self-driving trucks, maybe they'll be the you know one of the first in ushering this new technology. Yeah, exactly. And what about the second stage?
0: Right. So they say uh, jobs in management, science, <laughs> engineering, and the arts would be at risk. But they suggest that this would be limited by bottlenecks in labor and technological advancements. Uh, and there's a quote that strikes me as um, almost being like a bit of advice. Quote, our findings thus imply that as technology races ahead, low-skill workers will reallocate to tasks that are non-susceptible to computerization, i.e. tasks that required creative and social intelligence. Uh, For workers to win the race, however, they will have to acquire creative and social skills.
1: So we should all work on our creative and social skills next. (laughs) That's going to be like the next you better learn code.
0: Right, yeah. And, and they state in their article that social intelligence is less likely to become subject to computerization. And um, there are a variety of interesting breakdowns of how and why these jobs would be gobbled up, but suffice it to say the jobs that jobs, or that job loss is likely to be one of the first things that we feel um, as automation and then ultimately artificial intelligence continues to advance.
1: Yeah, so, you know, overall, it's not just labor, manufacturing, construction jobs that are affected. I mean, even some of the uh, you know, white collar jobs that we think of today. I mean, I've heard articles of AI taking over lawyers' jobs because yeah, it makes sense. so much of what they do is looking at, you know, searching through past case law, like right?
0: defined parameters. Yeah, yeah,
1: that a computer can do that easier. Yeah, it makes sense. Okay. Is that the reason why Elon Musk started Neuralink?
0: Well, it's at least part of the reason.
1: Okay. So let's move on and tell me what exactly is Neuralink?
0: Well, I should say that probably the most comprehensive explanation of this whole thing is Tim Urban's post on his blog, Wait But Why, titled Neuralink and the Brain's Magical Future, and it's a 40,000-word post, (laughs) and it's almost like a press release, uh, but more comprehensive.
1: So everyone should just stop listening to this and uh, go read that, and we'll all be taken care of.
0: (laughs) Okay, well, you should certainly check that post out um, if you're interested in, in sort of getting a word from the horse's mouth, right? But here's how I think I can bring some value to people in this conversation. So I'm going to sort of try to play devil's advocate against the optimism from Neuralink and Tim Urban. Um, I'm probably going to fail sometimes because I do find it exciting and interesting. Um, but we'll start with a bit of a summary of the information that the Neuralink team provided to Tim Urban. Uh, uh, but we'll also make sure to um, talk in a bit of greater depth about the actual technologies on which the folks um, associated with Neuralink are likely to be basing their plans.
1: Okay, so tell me about Neuralink.
0: Okay, so first, the team does have some serious people with serious pasts <laughs> on it. So uh, Paul uh, Marolla, um, and again, you know, I might be messing up names, but uh, Paul Merola uh, worked as the lead chip designer at IBM on something called Synapse or Synapse, spelled the Synapse, <laughs> Uh, where he led the development of the True North chip, which is one of the largest CMOSs, or Complementary Metal Oxide Semiconductors. CMOS. CMOS. Okay, thank you. Um, and his field uh, was devised with the goal of designing transistor circuits based on brain architecture.
1: All right, I can see it. You're starting to, you know, mix computers with brain stuff all right i see i see the right
0: yeah yeah okay and and then so then there's uh, vanessa tolosa who's an expert in flexible neural interfaces designing stable and biocompatible microelectrodes there's max hodak uh, who's worked on brain machine interfaces at duke and runs something called transcriptic a robot cloud lab for life sciences there's DJ dj seo i think is how you pronounce his name forgive me um, who designed the brain-machine interface called Neural Dust, uh, which we'll probably talk uh, about a bit later? Uh, but are basically very small sensors that can detect ultrasound, uh, with the goal of being able to record brain activity. There's Ben Rapaport, neurosurgeon, PhD in electrical engineering from MIT. There's a guy named Tim Hansen, who's described as an engineer, <laughs> and then there's uh, Flip Saves or Flip Sabes. Uh, a scientist at the University of California um, in San Francisco who focuses on cortical physiology, computational and theoretical modeling, and human physiology. And I should say that UCSF is one of the leading research institutions in ne- in the neurosciences uh, throughout the world. Um, and then finally, Tim Gardner, um, who has a lab at uh, Boston University and works on implanting brain-machine interfaces in birds to study how bird songs are arranged from pretty simple neurophysiological activity in bird brains, right? <laughs>
1: Definitely sounds like an all star team. <laughs> uh, but seriously, what are they working on?
0: Okay, so they describe themselves as a brain machine interface company producing uh, micron sized devices, uh, and they intend to introduce something that'll provide treatments for conditions like strokes, cancer, and congenital diseases within four years.
1: So, four years seems really ambitious. It seems sooner than I'd expect, um, you know, considering the things that we've discussed.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, the things that people talk about. Um, Yeah. And and, I mean, I know what you mean. Uh, And I think there is this natural tendency for a lot of the media coverage of this type of an effort to focus on the most attention grabbing topics uh, relevant to an effort like this.
1: Right. Like something that would you know, put us all in the matrix or turn us into the Borg or yeah, something ex- like that.
0: Exactly. And, and, you know, these are people interested in making sustainable businesses, right? And to make a sustainable business, you need to generate profits. So they see short-term profits coming from treatments, li- of, uh, treatments for these conditions.
1: Okay. So they're making these micron-sized devices that they say will be able to treat, uh, you know, a bunch of things under the sun from strokes to cancer. But what are we talking about physically? Is it neural dust? And, you know, if that's it, what on earth is NeuroDust?
0: Okay, so judging from what the Neuralink group has put out so far, it seems like they have a couple of options on the table, and perhaps they see a sort of transition from one uh, to the other as the technologies become more and more sophisticated.
1: So they're being open-minded. They're not, you know, limiting to one specific thing.
0: Yeah, it doesn't seem that way. Uh, but they do describe what they expect their brain-machine interface would look like in 40 years. They describe it as being uh, complete, smooth, biocompatible, and high bandwidth in terms of neural uh, neuronal uh, recording. And it'll communicate wirelessly with a cloud storage system as well as computers and the neural links of other people.
1: So your kids are going to turn into
0: the Matrix. <laughs> <laughs> right, or the Borg. Or the Borg.
1: Okay. Uh, so that's what it can do. But... You know, tell me a little bit more. What, what are you talking about? Like, what does it look like in my hands?
0: Yeah, and this is one of the criticisms that has been put out by um, by neuroscientists um, of the sort of announcement. And, and a lot of what the Neuralink group has put out there is very abstract, right? They, they haven't given a lot of concrete examples, um, and who knows why that might be the case. Uh, but what's clear is that they're not sure what it would look like in your hands. And so here are some of the possibilities that have been discussed. Um, there's an interface made of silk that can be rolled into a thin bundle and inserted into the brain where it would assume the contours of the neocortex. Another innovation that they highlighted are temporary tattoos of electrodes that can measure electrical signals on the skin after being stuck to the skin, right? Um, it, it can make long-term muscle recordings, for example. And these are like super thin electrodes that are, that are made of a carbon uh, electrode, an adhesive surface, and an electricity-conducting coating.
1: Huh, temporary tattoo like the ones that kids get when they're trick or treating or through one of those quarter gumball machines at the grocery store
0: right yeah 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 same idea and and it's it's just this super flexible adhesive electrode um tons of potential applications um from medicine to entertainment but also potentially something like neuralink and so another would be a sort of device um delivered vascularly right due to how well integrated our blood vessels are into the microstructures of the brain and so this to me seems both very interesting and very risky so one of the central issues that most of the platforms they've highlighted seems to suffer from is the fact that they can only really influence the outer surface of the neocortex. And while the neocortex is extremely important and involved in many things, the majority of the brain is not the outer layer of the neocortex. So, so delivery, or vascular delivery uh, would provide access to these subcortical structures. But um, these tiny blood vessels are truly tiny, right? They're minuscule. And so blocking any of them would essentially amount to inducing a stroke. Because, you know, the absence of blood flow, neurons begin to die. And so this would be a profoundly difficult problem to solve.
1: Yeah, and it sounds pretty counterproductive if the vice that you're using to treat the damage from the strokes actually causes other strokes. Yeah, right,
0: exactly. And so this approach strikes me as being the most similar to the work of a science fiction uh, author named Ramez Nam, who's a really interesting guy himself, Um, in addition to writing a pretty fun and compelling sci-fi series called The Nexus Trilogy. um, He's a former Microsoft guy where he worked on Outlook, you know, the email thing, Internet Explorer, Bing, and um, he ended up working on artificial intelligence.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Of course, Microsoft will have an artificial intelligence department. (laughs) I know,
0: right? Yeah, a little creepy, right? Uh, But anyways, what's cool about this book series so far, and I'm only about halfway through the first book, But what's cool about it is how um, with the typical suspension of sort of disbelief that all science fiction readers accept, um, how much it strikes me as a reasonably accurate portrayal of what a technology like Neuralink's would be in practice. And of course, you know, it's a fictional story with a narrative. So it has a plot with conflict and drama and everything. But um, at least so far, it's been pretty, pretty fun to read. and And I think like a pretty reasonable exploration of the topic.
1: Okay, so tell me what's similar about the blood delivery platform and the the you know the narrative in Nexus trilogy. How did they describe it?
0: Sure. So while Nam uh, doesn't describe how this platform would operate, at least not up to the point um, that I've read, he describes the platform as being more like like a drug than an implant. You, you take this stuff called Nexus, and it enables your brain to interact with a computer-code-driven medium that enables you to do a lot of the things that Tim Urban describes in his Wait But Why post um, about Neuralink.
1: Okay, so my mind is already blown. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you'll have to let us know what you think of the series when you finish it, or you, dear listener, if you have read the book already and have opinions, please share them. <laughs> um, so are there other platforms
0: Yeah, definitely. And like, you know, the things like arrays of electrodes that DARPA-funded groups are working on. And I couldn't really get specific enough information on these to hunt down the research. Uh, But then, of course, you know, there's DJ Seo's uh, neural dust, right, which are, you know, 100 micron-sized silicon sensors that can be distributed throughout the cortex. And they would interact with a small device implanted below the skull that's uh, using ultrasound.
1: Okay, so 100 microns, that's about the width of a human hair. And a neurodust is this, I mean, I'm imagining it's going to be like a bunch of little sensor nuggets throughout the brain that send and receive information from a bigger nugget that's maybe (laughs) implanted somewhere else in the skull.
0: Yeah, I I think that's the idea. Uh, And the last technology uh, they highlighted, right, in in this um, uh, blog post has been called Neural Lace. And um, interestingly, there are instances of Elon Musk referring to the company or its product as Neural Lace.
1: Maybe we should write them and suggest they call it Neural Nugget. (laughs) <laughs>
0: yeah yeah that'd be good marketing
1: at least it, you know it has alliteration it's catchy
0: it does have alliteration and it is pretty adorable <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh you know maybe they could partner with mcdonald's oh yeah i'm sure mcdonald's <laughs> is really interested in moving into the artificial
0: okay. intelligence game
1: <laughs> okay <laughs> well you know 40 years you know. okay moving on <laughs> so do you think that this means that this is the one that he thinks is the main contender
0: Right, Neural Lace. Um, So I don't think we can know, Uh, but it may reveal his fondness for another science fiction series called The Culture Series by Ian Banks.
1: And can you tell me why, other than the fact that his name is also Ian?
0: (laughs) Okay, so in in these books, uh, a neural lace is an implant that integrates with the physiology um, of the brain to to basically interact directly with various aspects of the body, creating a visual overlay or the ability to interact with machines and sort of elevate consciousness to compete with, with AI.
1: Okay, so that sounds exactly like, you know, what we're talking about here.
0: Right. Uh, And so in 2015, a fairly large group uh, composed of scientists from Harvard and the National Center for Nanoscience and Technology in Beijing published a paper about their platform to inject uh, flexible electronics that can conform to different shapes in a well-regarded journal, right?
1: Okay. And tell me more about flexible electronics.
0: So they describe it as a two millimeter wide mesh that was injected through a needle uh, with a very small diameter. And so it's basically a mesh, uh, like a grid of what I think um, is silicon nano, nanowire, right, that's capable of unfurling like a flag that's being caught by the wind.
1: So a two millimeter wide silicon mesh that can be rolled up and injected into the brain. I hate needles, so I don't, <laughs> think, this, I don't think this is the option for me.
0: <laughs> well, but I mean, the advantage would be that they don't have to remove a part of your skull, or at least a very big part of your skull.
1: Well, you know, I think there are pluses and minuses (laughs) to all of these. Okay. Okay, but, you know, this one is not my favorite, but tell me why it's so special.
0: Okay, so what's cool about this platform is that they appear to show that it integrates with adjacent cells, including neurons, uh, that fairly closely interact with the mesh, right? And so they detected low glial response to the implantation of the mesh when they injected it.
1: Is low glial response a good thing?
0: Right. So whenever there's any kind of insult to the brain, glial cells tend to invade the area as a sort of like scar tissue. And if, it, if it's true that their implant induces low level of gliosis, uh, then that means that there is relatively low apparent damage or at least detected damage by the brain.
1: So the brain's like, hello, neighbor. You're OK. You can stay here.
0: <laughs> yeah, I guess that's what the brain is saying.
1: <laughs> <laughs> All right. So you have this injectable mesh. And it, I'm imagining with a big enough mesh, you're covering significant areas of the brain so you can integrate with most of the brain. So this seems like the platform that allows for a really solid communication and output from the brain.
0: Are you sold on this? So a problem that they encountered is the fact that the injectable mesh can only conform to shapes. It can not actually expand into subcortical shapes.
1: And when you say subcortical shapes, uh, can you describe what you mean by that?
0: So it's definitely impressive, right, that any platform might be able to mold to the shape of the outermost surface of the brain. But when it comes to things like mood and, you know, uh, certainly like you know, simulated realities, the, the types of things that would be necessary for sharing realities akin to like what is imagined would be possible with the realization of Neuralink, you'd almost certainly need access to subcortical structures.
1: And of course, subcortical just basically means below the cortex, which is the outermost layer of the brain. And what do you study again, the cortex or the subcortical parts of the brain?
0: So I study subcortical areas that are um, actually evolutionarily quite a bit older than, you know, the human neocortex. And we talked about some of them when we did the podcast on anxiety and fear. Um, Some of these brain structures have existed on Earth in one animal or another for over 350 million years.
1: I see. And... You think that for a platform to be able to achieve all the things that people have aspired to or discussed related to Neuralink, the platform is going to have to be able to access those deeply buried parts of the brain.
0: I would expect that to be the case, uh, yes. To truly share the entirety of an experience or a thought, a memory, or a concept, I I just can't imagine that sending and receiving from the cortex alone would provide a sufficiently comprehensive recap of all the brain activity underlying these aspects of the human mind. And my bet is that Neuralink um, expects for there to be a progression of platforms, right, one leading into the other. And given that their short-term goal is to develop treatments for conditions like epilepsy and strokes, some platforms may be better positioned to treat certain conditions than others.
1: Right. It makes sense that they'd want to take it step by step and become more sophisticated as time went on. Um, So back to these platforms being better positioned. um, What do you mean by better positioned?
0: Let's take epilepsy as an example. Epilepsy is a disorder where there are episodes of abnormally elevated activity from neurons, which, when you measure it, looks like just uncontrolled activation in the brain. And these seizures of of activity are often accompanied by convulsions, right, and sometimes accompanied by other things, like a loss of responsiveness to the environment, called an absence seizure, or a loss of muscle tone, called atonic or drop seizures. Well, when it's possible to to identify the source of regions of the brain that are causing seizures uh, to occur, I I could imagine that implanting something like the grid described by the folks that designed the injectable neural mesh, right, neural lace, on top of or into the seizure-causing areas could enable a variety of treatment strategies.
1: And how might that work?
0: So this is just me speculating, but I could imagine that if this injectable mesh were capable of integrating with the source of seizure activity, right, you've targeted it, Uh, and it was capable of measuring and altering brain activity, you could detect the onset of a seizure through the device and then automatically deliver inhibitory feedback to the area to prevent the seizure from ever taking place. And so this is kind of like a pacemaker preventing arrhythmias where there's basically a battery connected to electrodes that are then connected to the heart. The pacemaker measures cardiac activity and if there's like abnormal cardiac activity, the pacemaker will send electrical signals to the heart to help correct that activity. So I could imagine that even a small implanted mesh capable of doing that sort of minimum of of what they described um, uh, could accomplish a very similar therapeutic effect uh, to a pacemaker in the case of epilepsy.
1: Right. So they first develop a preliminary version of something that could evolve to become more complex later on or something that's capable of generating enough profit to fund the large research and development that would be needed to develop something more complicated that would enable all the things that they described in Tim Urban's blog post.
0: Yeah, I think that's our plan.
1: Okay, so now let's talk about some of the things that were described in the wait but why post. What are these amazing claims that you keep
0: referencing? (laughs) So without just regurgitating the whole blog post, if you imagine what was possible in the matrix, imagine an even cooler version of that, but it's wireless and seamless with the real world.
1: So you wouldn't have to have a port implanted into your skull.
0: Right, uh, that's the kind of thing that they're after. In fact. One of their priorities is for the implantation of this platform to be largely non-invasive, uh, comparable to getting sort of LASIK to correct uh, visual impairments. And they want it to be wireless, very small and versatile enough to be sensitive to the activities of at least one million neurons.
1: One million neurons. <laughs> okay, nobody gets that. Reference.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I wonder how long it's been since Austin Power. Yeah,
1: well, this is an audio medium they don't. You don't see the little pinky finger okay or that you look just like dr
0: evil (laughs) of course
1: so why one million i mean if i remember correctly the brain has 86 billion so you know what would be one percent of the brain's neurons i mean why is that important
0: yeah they didn't provide a rationale for that number apart from the fact that it's significantly higher than the current record of around 500 neurons Uh, they make an appeal to Moore's Law, right, where the number of transistors fitting onto a computer chip has doubled roughly every 18 months. And so that might kind of be like a model for how rapidly our ability to record from a very large set of neurons might be. Um, They also mention a plot put together by um, uh, Ian Stevenson and Conrad Cording of the number of neurons that were able to be recorded from simultaneously over the past 50 years. And they come up with a projection that suggests that the number seems to double every seven and a half years, 7.4 years.
1: So that would still take... Quite a few years before we get to one million simultaneous neurons,
0: for sure. Uh, but they make the argument that the ultimate goal isn't to reach one million neurons, but for a technological breakthrough that leads the way to reaching a, a million simultaneously recording neurons, right? And, and then beyond one million. So some of the early models that a company like Neuralink put um, puts out may help sort of expedite the process, right, of this technological development. But yeah, given what the resources ha- uh, we have today. It'd be another like 200 years <laughs> before we could gain access to and then record from all of the brain's neurons.
1: So is that what you think would be necessary for us to be living in the Matrix or in the Nexus trilogy?
0: It's tough to say because we still don't have a completed neuroscience, right? But and because I'm a, a mood circuitry chauvinist, my instinct is to argue that not all regions of the brain are entirely necessary to knit together a pretty convincing reality. So, for example, people can theoretically have fairly comprehensive experiences following strokes while losing certain components of their brain. It might be the case that you could go without measuring every neuron in the language comprehension and production circuit while still being able to encode language in an augmented or virtual reality by, you know, for example, measuring activity uh, at neurons or muscles outside of the brain. Like where? Like, well, remember, we have this whole peripheral nervous system, right? So like near the various muscles that are used to produce speech or just measuring the brain circuitry associated with the initial stages of speech production and then just skipping the circuitry associated with the actual stimulation of the muscles.
1: I see. So just focus on measuring the regions of the brain that generate the early stages of a spoken word without measuring the regions that literally control your tongue.
0: Right. And I could imagine that may be true for other aspects of consciousness as well. Uh, where there's like a minimum number of neurons that's necessary to measure, to to get a good enough picture, right? And then a computer fills in the gaps and takes care of the rest. That principle may translate to dramatically fewer neurons that would be necessary to be recorded.
1: All right. So what I'm imagining now is this platform that measures your intent because it's measuring the plan to say a word instead of you actually saying the word. And now we're going to be in like that Tom Cruise movie where you come up with, you know, intent. And it right. can be bad intent, but you actually haven't done the thing yet.
0: Yeah. What's yeah. that
1: movie called? A
0: minority Report. Minority. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's you know thought thought crime, right? Um, yeah. I, I suspect that that's going to come up <laughs> a couple more times. <laughs> uh, but.
1: All right. And so, what would this experience be like? Why would this be so cool and valuable?
0: Well, uh, to get us going here, I, I really like one of the quotes from Elon Musk that describes our current relationship with technology, right? our current relationship, and, and how this type of a technology would be a significant improvement. And so so here's the quote.
1: Okay, well, I'm, I'm gonna read it this time. Okay? <laughs> yeah. You've read all the quotes.
0: <laughs> okay, fair enough.
1: You're already digitally superhuman. The thing that would change is the interface, having a high bandwidth interface to your digital enhancements. The thing is that today, the interface all necks down to this tiny straw, which is particularly in terms of output, It's like poking things with your meat sticks or using words, either speaking or tapping things with fingers. And in fact, output has gone backwards. It used to be in your most frequent form, output would be 10-finger typing. Now it's like two-thumb typing. That's crazy slow communication. We should be able to improve that by many orders of magnitude with a direct neural interface. Mic drop.
0: (laughs) Meat sticks. (laughs) And so the reason I like that quote is because it it makes a point that I like to make, uh, which is we've already started the process of merging with technology. Like, what's the last phone number you memorized? I bet that might even be like a crazy question to certain younger people because they've probably never, ever had to do it. Or, for example, consider the effect that a massive proportion of the population having what would have been a supremely powerful camera in your pocket, right, at all times has had on society. And then human memory, I mean, human memory is infamously poor and vulnerable to change over time, which we've talked about in the past, right? While recorded videos and pictures are entirely game-changing in that respect. And the last one uh, that drives the point home for me, and perhaps others as well, is is the effect that being able to type quickly has had on how I sat through classes, Uh, for example. I, I was fortunate to be taught how to type at a pretty young age, and I'm able to type pretty fast now. So when I got to grad school and realized that the volume of information that I was going to have to master was orders of magnitude greater than what I'd confronted in college, I realized I was going to have to come up with with some new solutions, right? I I basically um, got to the point where I was essentially transcribing every class.
1: Why not use a voice recorder? I know some people do that.
0: Yeah, excellent question. (laughs) And um, even just using a voice recorder is a great example of how technology is already changing how the brain interacts with the environment in society, right? But Transcribing the class is vastly superior, I've argued many times, because you then have a computer searchable document, right? So do you want to sit through a two-hour lecture uh, on on secondary immunity, you know, scrolling through to try and find what you you know are trying to, to study? Or do you want to just review the section on major histocompality complex molecules?
1: Can I pick neither?
0: <laughs> well, the point is that you can just, you know, control F, find... You know, uh, uh, MHC, you know, or or major histocompatibility uh, complex. So you
1: can't even say it.
0: Yeah, everybody just says MHC. (laughs) Um, And that, it was was a massive game changer in terms of how my brain navigated its its environment, right? It, It relied very, very heavily on the ability for a computer to take some of the responsibility of memorizing information immediately something that computers are far superior in doing already, and then enabling the wetware of my brain to pour over the information and then more slowly absorb it. Anyways, uh, and here's where I'm gonna start playing a bit more Devil's Advocate. Um, This next quote did make me wonder if a platform like the one they're describing really would accomplish all the things that Musk envisions.
1: And I quote, there are a bunch of concepts in your head that then your brain has to try to compress into this incredibly low data rate called speech or typing. That's what language is. Your brain has executed a compression algorithm on thought, on concept transfer, transfer, and then it's got to listen as well and decompress what's coming at it. This is very lossy as well. So when you're doing the decompression on those, trying to understand, You're simultaneously trying to model the other person's mind state to understand where they're coming from, to recombine in your head, what concepts that they have in their head that they're trying to communicate to you. If you've two brain interfaces, you could actually do an uncompressed direct conceptual communication with another person.
0: Right, and I'm not entirely sure that this is how this would go. So the information, regardless of its source, is ultimately filtered through the structures of your brain, to be comprehended, right? The hardware is doing something. It's not purely software running on identical hardware. Your experiences, beliefs, and and so on will have an effect on how that information, perfectly and rapidly delivered, is interpreted and integrated. I am, for sure, sympathetic to the point they're making here, though—that words are poor representations of thoughts. It's impossible for any word to perfectly encompass the entirety of, of the experiences, variable as they are, that people, um, that you know, different people will have when they think of, of, of a word, right? So, I do think that this would be a much more effective thought delivery system. But I also think that they're underemphasizing the role that the actual hardware of the brain plays in modulating experiences.
1: So in other words, you're saying that the physical structure of the brain would kind of be like a filter of information no matter what, no matter how it's delivered.
0: Yeah, that's right. And since we all have slightly different structures that compose our brains, I just suspect that even with the most perfect of brain-machine interfaces, the physical structures of the brain would still prevent us from having truly identical experiences.
1: Okay, so what are some of the manifestations of this technology? Like, do they explain how they see this brain-machine-to-brain interface (laughs) altering our experiences?
0: Yeah, they they do. And a lot of it strikes me as pretty realistic, assuming that they actually do develop a whole brain-machine interface. And so for the time being, let's assume that they, or or a group like theirs, is successful in developing this whole brain interface that enables perfect or just nearly perfect um, interaction of the human brain and computer systems. Let's just stipulate that for a while here. Well, if this interface were embedded throughout the brain thoroughly enough, it would therefore be able to smoothly interface with computers. Um, It would enable your brain to, right? And those computers would be very widely interconnected. And so some of the things that they describe are like controlling your car with your mind, unlocking your doors automatically with no key required, and automatically turning on your coffee maker when you wake up or just want coffee. But honestly, like, okay, as cool as it might be where you can just like trigger your coffee maker to start making coffee, It strikes me as like slightly mundane. If you truly have a whole brain-computer interface, drinking coffee to get a bit of stimulation would be like the difference between using like an abacus and a state-of-the-art computer. Like why rely on the limited and messy pharmacology of caffeine when you have a perfectly integrated circuitry control device, right? You could just program yourself to wake up exactly at 7 in the morning and almost immediately feel as stimulated as you do at 10, right? No morning sleepy fogginess, no sluggish thoughts, no lack of motivation, just perfectly executed activity.
1: Uh, well, first of all, I'm sold because I hate waking up in the morning. I am not a morning person. But secondly, this is starting to sound like brain control. Like, yeah in the hands of evil brain (laughs) controllers.
0: Yeah, and we're definitely going to talk about that. Okay. Um, And and so, and I can imagine a variety of other ways that this ability to interface with computer-controlled devices would be useful, right? Interested in learning how to break dance or play the guitar or do a workout routine an actor did to prepare for their role in a superhero movie? You could download the exact motor sequence sold by those very people and have your brain cause you to literally act it out.
1: I mean, the possibilities are endless. I mean, I could play the piano like Mozart. I could learn that.
0: Yeah, there you go. It would be like the instantiation of the I know Kung Fu moment in The Matrix, right? This is one aspect of their claims, again, assuming that a technology like this is made, that strikes me as being reasonably realistic. Um, individual variation on in our motor cortices or even mood circuitry wouldn't necessarily prevent this from happening. We all have motor cortices, regardless of any subtle differences.
1: Okay, but then I have the question of, is there enough, you know, quote-unquote storage on your brain? Like, do you... Can you only learn one skill at a time or are you limited to 10 skills because you just can't hold all of that knowledge?
0: No, I, I mean, I, I don't see any reason for that to be the case. Of course, you know, you can't know for sure because nothing like this exists. Right. But I mean, you know, you go through your life, you learn new skills, you know, you know how to break dance. Maybe you can do swing dancing. Right. Or, you know, you know how to fire a bow and arrow. You can learn how to fire a gun. You can learn how to you know, throw a dart. Right. These are all slightly different skills. Um, but of course, they're all related. Right? And so it's not like you know, downloading the, uh, the motor instructions to learn how to breakdance would be a complete departure from anything you've ever done before, right? We've all you know, tumbled around or wrestled or you know, done things that are kind of like breakdancing, just not in the sort of fluid way that breakdancers do, right?
1: Okay, so what else?
0: The next thing that they talk about is how it would affect communication of thoughts. And we already discussed some of my little criticism uh, of these claims, right? But uh, let's go a bit deeper here. Here's another quote from uh, Elon Musk.
1: Quote, if I were to communicate a concept to you, you'd essentially engage in consensual telepathy. You wouldn't need to verbalize unless you wanted to add a little flair to the conversation or something. But the conversation would be conceptual interaction on a level that's difficult to conceive of right now.
0: Okay, so while I do think that this type of a platform would dramatically improve our ability to communicate with each other more comprehensively, I still think that there's this underestimation of the latency between when the brain gets information inputs and when it cognitively integrates that information.
1: So what do you mean by the brain getting information inputs?
0: Yeah, it's kind of a a strange category, right? So this can be sensory inputs, like the feeling of being cold, or it can be conceptual inputs, like how you feel or understand the meaning of a book or movie. It's all just incoming information uh, to the brain. Okay, gotcha. Well, as we said before, no two brains are 100% congruent, right? There are always subtle differences in the physical structures of the brain. And so there just can't be a one-to-one, neuron-to-neuron activation of one person's brain to another's. It's inevitably filtered somehow from input circuitry to comprehension circuitry. So while it would almost certainly be a dramatic... A dramatically more efficient information delivery system, I do think that they're underestimating the role of the hardware of the brain in the communication of thoughts. Anyways, and and I think they do deserve some credit for entertaining this concern, which is, given that we theoretically have more direct access to each other's thoughts and experiences, will this be the end of the existence of private thought?
1: Back to Minority Report.
0: Yeah, right. The thought crime in, in Minority Report. Exactly. And so here's another quote from Musk.
1: People won't be able to read your thoughts. You would have to will it. If you don't will it, it doesn't happen. Just like if you don't will your mouth to talk, it doesn't talk.
0: Well, I just haven't seen anything that would mandate this to be the case. I mean, I assume it'd it'd be some sort of software solution on the computer side, meaning like like a feature of the medium by which neural signals are communicated, like a signal filter of some sort that would prevent a flow of information without an accepted signal. However, I feel like this is just so ripe for hacking, and they do go into this a bit more.
1: Okay, so let's get into it. I mean, this seems like a pretty horrifying possibility, given what we've already described so far.
0: Sure, and again, kudos to Tim Urban for exploring this topic, as it's definitely a concern for a technology like this. Though, frankly, I think that the topic probably warranted a bit more of a comprehensive confrontation. I mean, if someone were to actually be able to hack into a system that's so thoroughly integrated into your brain, as they describe, Urban suggests that a clever hacker might be able to change your thoughts or your vote, identity, or make you want to do something terrible you'd normally never consider. um, And you wouldn't even know it happened. Wow. (laughs) You're right. But it's worse than this, I argue. Not only would somebody be able to nudge your behavior, but again, assuming that this brain-machine interface was thoroughly integrated and sophisticated, as they they discussed, hacked behavior-modifying circuitry could be entirely inescapable for the duration of one's entire life. You could have to live your life as a passive observer while your body acts out a series of behaviors against your will, and you'd have zero recourse, or perhaps even worse, you could be programmed to have zero will to resist at all. You'd be fully emotionally and zealously committed to the new controller, and you wouldn't feel an iota of guilt or concern over your actions. In fact, you could be encoded to like have an orgasm every time you commit an act of terrorism, or get a neurochemical reward akin to what people feel when when they take heroin or cocaine, but without any risk of overdose, right? The term brainwashing doesn't even come close to articulating the depth of control somebody could have over another. They could be programmed to be a slave without ever knowing it and enjoying it the entire time. But to be clear, I do think that the benefits outweigh the possible negatives.
1: Well, these benefits better be pretty significant because what you just described seems like an epic nightmare.
0: Yeah, I I think they are. But... Uh, Before getting to that, let's keep exploring the ways that this kind of a technology would change our lived experience. The next thing that they discuss is multimedia communication. And here's another must quote, uh, then followed by a quote directly from Tim Urban's post to get us going.
1: So I'll be Elon, you be Tim. (laughs) Okay, sure. Quote, I could think of a bouquet of flowers and have a very clear picture in my head of what that is. It would take a lot of words for you to even have an approximation of what that bouquet of flowers looks like.
0: Okay, and then here's here's the one from uh, Tim Urban, similar to thought communication, but imagine how easier, how much easier it would be to describe a dream you had, or a piece of music stuck in your head, or a memory you're thinking about, if you could just beam the thing into someone's head, like showing them on your computer screen.
1: You'd never have to read a woman's mind again.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's cute. You'd <laughs> decimate a whole <laughs> business of pickup artists. <laughs> charlatans. <laughs> okay, so, so I have another sort of similar critique here that I did before. The problem here is going to be the fact that input circuitry isn't likely identical to experience circuitry. Sensory inputs activate certain circuits, and then that sensory information is interpreted to generate an experience. If the input fo- uh, from someone else's direct experience was fed through that sensory circuitry, then there would still be a personal modification while that experience is filtered through your experience circuitry, right, to deliver a personal experience. If, however, uh, there was a one-to-one activation of the very same neurons in your brain that were activated when the other person had the experience, it would be fundamentally unlike looking at someone else's computer screen because you'd just be ripped from your current experience and placed into the other's experience temporarily. Totally amazing, right? But it's more of an induced reality than simply communicating an experience like watching a video that someone took with their phone.
1: Right. I see what you mean by this being a similar criticism. It's due to the differences in our brain hardware and that you may not be able to activate the same neurons in each person because those neurons may not be there.
0: Right, or, or they may be differently connected um, or in slightly different regions. You know, yeah, there's a bunch of variability there. Um, and, and as well as uh, what I think may be a misunderstanding of the circuitry that underlies sensory experiences and then interpretation or comprehension of an experience. They're not always necessarily one and the same. Anyways, another point that Urban makes is that um, engineers or designers could complete the plans for a new bridge or building or dress if they all beam visions of of these plans directly into the brains of others. I'm totally into this as a tool. I I love to be able to communicate on a much deeper level about how I think the circuit I study contributes to the overall activity of the brain with my mentor, right? She and I have spent hours discussing possible meta theories of how this circuit is functioning and hand gestures are only so useful in communicating, right? But as is the case with how platforms like you know, YouTube are hailed by some as the thing that's going to revolutionize education, I'm just not sure that this would actually expedite things as much as they're portraying. I'm just not sure that even more effective description of ideas is the bottleneck in collaboration. I'd imagine that disagreements would still be the bottleneck, and not all disagreements stem from poor communication, but rather from past experience, worldviews, and, and so on.
1: Right. I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Like, you could tell me something, and I still have the ability to think, that's a good idea, that's a bad idea. Or, hey, that reminds me of this one time when blah, 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 blah.
0: Right. And it's not, you know, you might think it's a bad idea, not because I didn't correctly describe it.
1: But because it's a bad idea. You just disagree. Right. Yeah,
0: exactly. (laughs) And then one last quote here um, that I think is worth discussing from, from Tim Urban. How many symphonies could Mozart have written if he had been able to think the music in his head onto the page? How many Mozarts are out there right now? who never learned how to play instruments well enough to get their talent out. Okay, so this is basically arguing that if we were to reduce the time delay between an idea and its execution, we'd amplify productivity, or spe- more specifically in this case, creative output. And so to a certain extent, I bet that's entirely true. Though I do wonder if the law of diminishing returns apply here applies here a- a- as a function of, of how the circuitry of the brain produces comprehension and creativity.
1: I mean, how do we know that we don't just generate a lot of noise?
0: Yeah, that, that, that's certainly true. Yeah, I mean, one could imagine that there would be some sort of filter function that, that selects signal to noise. I mean, it would be profoundly challenging, of course. And I think that, you know, that's implicit in the description of these capabilities. Um, the processes of creativity aren't necessarily limited by your ability to generate output. I mean, I, I'm sure for some people, like maybe Stephen King, that guy just seems to be able to write novels just like a machine. He's, he's amazing. And maybe he is literally limited by the sort of stamina in his fingers to type. But I think for most artists, you know, you, you have a wonderful idea every now and then, and it's not really your ability to paint or your ability to sing that's limiting you, right? It's the creativity itself, the processes in the brain that underlie creativity, that, that's the limiting factor, I, I would argue.
1: Okay, so where do you think Tim is true and where do you think uh, this is off base?
0: Well, I I certainly think it's true in terms of worker productivity, right? Just having computers and machines available to amplify the productivity of workers has made the average output of a given worker significantly higher.
1: Except when they're on Twitter, Facebook, or BuzzFeed.
0: (laughs) Yeah, right. True. Uh, But but I think the net effect is that each worker has become more productive, right? But when it comes to creative endeavors, I, I just, I wonder if the very act of writing out music, or in my case, reading the literature, writing my notes, and then writing out the articles has its own beneficial effect on the cognitive processes. right? In other words, just the time that it takes for me to read the 150 articles that I reference in my upcoming publication, plus the time it takes for me to synthesize the information and make a new set of points, that time might have a uniquely beneficial effect on the end product.
1: Tell me more about why time itself would be beneficial. I mean, wouldn't speeding up brain processes be a good thing too?
0: Well, you wouldn't necessarily be speeding up the brain, the physical brain processes themselves, right? There are certain processes in the brain that just take a set amount of time. So in particular, neuroplasticity underlying learning and memory. Um, As I'm reading these articles, I'm learning and storing new information, but to learn and store that information, my brain is generating new synaptic connections, synthesizing proteins, expressing genes, and so on. And, And there's sort of a minimum length of time for me to do that, right? So it kind of goes both ways between brain processes that underlie ideas and the processes that underlie the output of those ideas. And I know that having a relatively slow and deliberative process of assembling knowledge before writing these articles results in improved fact retention just for me and, more importantly, a better understanding of a given topic.
1: Right. So that makes a lot of sense. And to give a fairly concrete example, you know, when we're in school, we don't just have one class period to cover a concept and that's it. You know, we have the classwork and we have homework and then we review and we study again before a test.
0: Exactly. And so I'll go back to my metaphor of how the Grand Canyon, this incredible geological formation in the northwest region of the state of of Arizona, kind of close to Nevada and, and Utah, formed over millions of years of water flowing over rocks, right? Just like water will start to carve grooves into rocks over which it flows, repeated exposure to information will begin to sculpt brain circuitry. And while it doesn't take millions of years in the brain, it does take some time to be sculpted. And by the way, this is certainly an argument of why a sophisticated artificial intelligence would ultimately be able to dominate our own intelligence. Our consciousness is fundamentally limited by the properties of the wetware of our brain. The consciousness of an actual artificial intelligence would largely be limited by just the laws of physics and not biology.
1: Sounds like another podcast. Right, right. (laughs) Okay, so how else would this technology affect our daily lives?
0: So the next topic that they cover is how it would affect emotional communication. And they open by highlighting the fact that words are poor mechanisms to effectively communicate emotions.
1: Which is why we now have emoticons.
0: <laughs> Actually, is some, some interesting <laughs> argument to be made there. but
1: <laughs> Right. I mean, people can say the word happy, but that means things to different people.
0: Yeah, exactly. The difference is between happy and euphoric, for example.
1: And give us a little uh, tidbit. How would this technology affect that? An appetizer, if you will.
0: Okay, so they make the argument that we'd likely discover that the emotions that different people associate with words may be unique to them. And I think that's certainly possible, though I do imagine that instead of preserving this unique aspect of emotional experiences, a technology like this may have an effect of standardizing our emotionality. So in other words, if a group of friends tend to interact with with one another more than than people outside their group, right, which is natural, uh, they may fairly rapidly come to a consensus of what exactly constitutes sadness. And as well as what constitutes awe or or the differences of hate and rage and so on. So, So I do agree that this would undeniably be a superior medium by which we could communicate our current emotional statuses, right? It may act to refine the categories that we use to define various emotional states. And so just like there's a dictionary of definitions of words to which we can all refer, there'd very likely be something similar for emotional states.
1: Ooh, that's cool. A dictionary for emotions.
0: Yeah, pretty wild. And they make the argument that it would likely provide for a future of heightened empathy. And, and again, assuming a highly sophisticated brain-computer interface right, that they make, you'd be able to literally experience the emotional states of others.
1: Which most humans already naturally do to a certain extent.
0: Right. That, that's an important basis for empathy. When we see another person suffering, we feel that suffering in a small way. Well, imagine being in a courtroom as a juror for a case involving a murder. I could imagine part of the evidence presented being the emotional states experienced by the people involved in the incident at the time that the incident occurred.
1: Or, you know, in that courtroom you could feel what the murderer and the victim felt at the time of the crime. Or... Ideally, maybe murder wouldn't happen at all because the murderer would be able to anticipate what the victim would feel like. Hopefully, the empathy would just prevent the
0: <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, in, in an ideal world, right? <laughs> but exactly, or, or even stranger. Imagine art that purely elicits emotional states. Someone comes up with a unique balance of emotional states that you can experience, or perhaps an interesting progression through emotional states. You go through three minutes of day-to-day baseline and nothing special to two minutes of horrified, right? And then five minutes of miserable and depressed. And then two minutes of triumphant, you know, victory to eight minutes of fully satisfied. You're doing nothing but feeling emotions, almost like tasting wines or or different flavors of potato chips.
1: Well, okay. I mean, that sounds like what music and movies tries to do is they're trying to, you know, make you feel a range of emotions. And you're taking on this journey, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, could I just... You know, give the input of the emotion of what it's like to eat my favorite food, like, all the time.
0: (laughs) Yeah. So just play the feeling of eating lobster with melted butter for me, right? Uh, But the reality is that you may get sick and tired of feeling that very quickly, and the appeal of those emotions may fade if you don't only experience them occasionally. You may yearn for an emotional experience of an intense movie like the Shawshank Redemption or Rocky or the Lord of the Rings or something.
1: Or one of my favorites in the movie Avengers where the Hulk slams Loki into the ground and says, puny god. It's a triumphant moment.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, But that moment in the Avengers wouldn't have been so awesome if, for a period of time, it looked like they were going to lose. Would you go to a movie where the Avengers are just completely, constantly winning, right? (laughs) I think there's a reason that good and important stories have, you know, conflict where we feel bad for the protagonist. And then... And the same reason would make us compelled to just avoid programming our neural link to make us perpetually drool with contentedness, or you know, at least most of us, I would imagine.
1: Well, I think this does bring up an interesting possible application of this technology, which is entertainment.
0: Right, and they do highlight this, explicitly saying that emotional communication via this technology uh, would be linked to things like movies. And while I agree, I think it would actually be entirely necessary if this platform were uh, to be used to simulate a a reality. Um, if you're going to effectively simulate what it'd be like to stand next to Gandalf and Rivendell during the formation of the Fellowship of the Ring and The Lord of the Rings, or fight Agent Smith you know, in The Matrix, I suppose it might be possible to exclusively stimulate the sensory circuitry that the character in the movie would be you know, seeing and hearing and feeling but then your character would likely start making decisions that you wouldn't necessarily have made because of your unique emotional reactivity. Uh, you know, and so you'd be very unlikely to be identical to the experiences of those that the movie's writers intended. Right? And so this is why when it comes to things like the possibility of fully immersive virtual reality for entertainment in the form of something like a movie, I suspect that it's going to have to be all or nothing. You either feel everything the character feels or you don't have a truly immersive virtual reality.
1: I mean why does it have to be all or nothing why couldn't you just have you know a general nudge in a certain direction
0: yeah and i mean I, I would imagine that's where we're going to start going you know in the, in the near future but you know if you are truly as they argue if you're truly going to simulate you know you're the the first person main character in a movie you know that character is making decisions right like um you know whatever um like Bilbo Baggins not deciding to destroy the ring or Frodo hesitating to throw the ring into, you know, the volcano, right? Like some of us might understand the conflict of, you know, the the, the draw to power, the addiction and, and so on. Some of us might be like, just throw the freaking ring in the volcano already. Like, seriously, you're standing here. This is super frustrating, you know? And like, <laughs> and so, yeah, of course, it, it's still entertaining. We still watch. These characters make decisions that we don't necessarily agree with and it's still entertaining to us. But if you are actually going to, sell, right, the the simulated experience of the main character of the movie, you're probably also going to have to taste the emotional states of that character so that you understand the decisions that they're making in the moment. And, And like, you know, another argument is that I could imagine this type of entertainment might evolve into a sort of sandbox version of movie entertainment.
1: What do you mean by sandbox?
0: Well, there are certain video games that are you know, described as sandbox games where, where the player has very few restrictions in terms of choices or actions within the game. So you can freely explore the game's environment and interact with the features of the game in a variety of ways. And in some cases, actually interact with other players of the game in a variety of ways.
1: Okay, so what are some classic examples of sandbox games?
0: I think the typical example would probably be Minecraft, uh, but everything from Skyrim to uh, you know, Grand Theft Auto are sort of versions of sandbox games where your character can freely roam a massive environment and you have a huge set of actions that you can take. Well, imagine a version of a movie where there's a set plot that evolves over time, but you can interact with the plot as the main character. Like imagine you're Luke Skywalker but decide to avoid Obi-Wan Kenobi because he seems a little creepy and too recluse and whatever. And so instead, you decide to learn how to play those wacky saxophone instruments that the aliens are playing in the canteen on Mos Eisley. And so for a huge portion of the movie, you're interacting with a completely different set of characters while the Empire and Rebellion are duking it out in space. Or, you know, imagine that you're Neo or I guess Thomas Anderson at the beginning of the movie and you decide to take the blue pill instead of the red pill and continue experiencing the dual hacker software engineer life that the person... Uh, who would otherwise become Neo would have had.
1: But I mean, in both those cases, it sounds like it would be a super boring movie.
0: Well, I guess, you know, that would be the challenge. It would be up to the script writers to ensure that no matter what choice you made, contingency you went down, interesting things will happen. But the point is that entirely new forms of entertainment will be born out of the ability to more directly induce experiences, emotional states, and, and choice possibilities.
1: Kind of seems like a blending of video games and movies and really a creation of an alternate reality.
0: Yeah, that, that's right. And, um, you know, so th- there's, a, there's a great um, science fiction book called Ready Player One um, that I highly recommend. It, it's a lot of fun. It, it does sort of explore what this kind of a technology would be like. It, it's not, um, it doesn't really talk very much about, you know, like neuroscience or, or you know, that type of thing. Then, you know, Nexus Trilogy is probably a little bit better for that. But still, it, it, I think it's a, it's a good exploration or extrapolation of what that kind of a medium w- would be like. But honestly, when I look at some of the games that are coming out lately and compare them to the games that I played when I was in high school, they all look pretty similar to movies at this point. I mean, so I think it's already kind of happening, but a technology like Neuralink uh, would theoretically place us in the driver's seat of the main characters of both movies and video games.
1: Okay, so we're going to have to cut the conversation here and continue in the next episode because there's obviously more to talk about. But I think we've already been talking for too long for one episode.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. So next time we'll finish exploring how else this kind of a technology would change our daily lives, as well as you know a deeper dive into the various technological innovations that are the foundations for a platform like Neuralink and some of the contemporary efforts to influence brain activity that are on the market today. But. Until then, if you find this interesting, I hope you won't mind taking a moment to leave a positive rating on iTunes because I am led to believe that these ratings are fairly important to enabling more people to check out the podcast. And I know that can be a bit of an awkward inconvenience, and I know that it drains some of your time, but I do appreciate it. But even if you don't, thanks for listening.
1: So you know how people talk about how the brain thinking about the brain is like the brain pondering itself and like learning about itself. Yeah. Right. Uh But in this case, it could be like AI is like using the brain to learn more about AI. So like AI is learning about itself.
0: Yeah, right. I mean, no kidding. Or by the way, I mean, you know, we will be using AI to understand more about the brain. Right. Because, you know, the resources available to a computer system are going to be dramatically greater, you know, just in terms of data processing. Like where to use machine learning and stuff like that. You know, so, yeah, a lot of weird interactions between computers and people.
1: Oh, and speaking of AI made art that we talked about. Yeah. We've we seen those Google
0: super duper creepy images with yeah. eyeballs. Eyeballs everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, pretty strange. <laughs>